As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. And I'm not exaggerating when I say today is one of those days where I'm, it's an honor and privilege to be speaking with my guest today. And I could go on and on and it's not it's honor. It really is a privilege to be able to be in contact with people who you attribute so much of your own intellectual journey to. And today I'm joined by Professor Kelly. Welcome to the Malcolm Effect. Out, out of fear of this becoming the ramblings of a sycophant, I'm going to go straight into it. <laughs> so welcome, Professor Kelly. Thank you so much for joining me. Th th thank you. I think it's the other way around. I can't believe I'm on the Malcolm effect. It's like, I, <laughs> I just, you know, it's just impossible that I even got this far, you know? So I'm just, I'm very excited. I just, I'm just hoping I don't embarrass myself, you know? <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. So we're going to go straight into it. We're talking all things activism, freedom, your work, liberation, and all of the above. So my first question is, to bounce around, and we can all maybe have a response to this, but I'd like to pose okay. it to you first. When assessing our present moment, if you were speaking to the next generation of activists and organizers, what would you be telling them to focus on? <laughs> it's funny. I, I feel like I'm speaking to the next generation all the time, you know, especially yes. my 10-year-old um, my daughter, you know. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if what I would say now would be significantly different from what I said, say, 20 years ago, because, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that happens with a lot of organizers in the moment is this sense of not being able to see the future. And mm -hmm. so in trying to construct a new future, mm -hmm. there's a tendency to look for models in the past. So mm -hmm. 20 years ago, it was the Black Panther Party, you know, it was you know, various organizations that people look to um, as models and saying, well, if we can only be like that. And not actually recognizing always that what they have to offer, what their generation has to offer uh, in struggle, in praxis, is, are, mm. are the answers for the moment. You know, that they actually know a lot more <laughs> than I know. I, like, I, I swear, and I'm not, I'm not just saying this, um, the young people who are in the streets right now, who are in classrooms right now, who are in, in various spaces of struggle, they know a lot more than I do. And I'm looking to them for, for leadership and for knowledge. If there are some things I would say just in general, mm -hmm. I would say, one, make sure you understand you live in the world and not this country, you know, that mm -hmm. you have to understand the global situation. And that means that when you fight, for example, U.S. state violence and the police, you're fighting the whole U.S. military. You cannot mm -hmm. separate those things. You cannot separate those things. When you, when you say that you're a revolutionary, you cannot say that maybe I can be one by working through the Democratic Party. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> um, you, can't, you can't do that. You, 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 in fact, when we think about what it means to, to sort of move, a, to move forward as a movement, to try to go beyond what people call kind of non-reformist reforms to real change, We've got to think about what it means to build autonomous power and not see the state 
as always the answer. Like if we can just get the state to do this or move this way, then we'll be okay. Or even if we get to seize the state, that apparatus itself will be the tool we can use for liberation. That's simply historically not true, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I guess the final thing I would say, just in terms of just general, general sense, is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. We, we, and this is for this particular generation, it's very, it's, 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 I think, a really important observation because, you know, movements have congealed and fallen apart often over how people might re, uh, react to one another, how they might mm-hmm. speak to someone else, how they might make errors. And so a lot of like, you know, personal recriminations and attacks, they become ad hominem. And especially in this age of social media, where you know, I don't <laughs> want to go into a whole thing about cancel culture, but there's a way in which we, we destroy each other by yep. then taking these internal struggles that are really, you know, meant to be productive, these internal debates, and then putting them out there. And then pretty Mm. soon it becomes egos after egos. And then we lose focus of what we're trying to do in the first place. Because we know we're not fighting for ourselves. We're not fighting for likes. We're not fighting for, you know, fame. We're fighting for each other, you know? So I I take it we won't be getting a Robin Kelly Twitter page anytime soon then? Oh, no. I I, I was on Twitter (laughs) once. I was on Twitter (laughs) once. And for the purposes of trying to be, trying to get, you know, up-to-date information. But I was driven, I was driven off. That's another story. Oh, no. Well, I'm I'm not I don't cry about it. <laughs> no, no, but no, but yeah, it's, no, no, I was not uh, you getting dragged on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was it was a, it's actually a very interesting story and it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about. But it had to do with actually it's very relevant. I, I was pushed off by Tanahasi Coates' followers, oh, not Tanahasi, not Tanahasi, but his followers, and it really came down to you know he and I did a conversation which he found productive and I found productive about his book, Between the World and Me. And I was very critical of it. And it was supposed to be a conversation. Uh, it's actually online for, uh, through LA Public Library. And I was critical and I pushed him on some things. I pushed him on his interpretation of James Baldwin. I pushed him on his understanding of Reconstruction. And I told him, you know, I was the one who said, you know, did you, have you read Du Bois' Black Reconstruction? And he said, no. I said, you need to read it. And this is why. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he took from it a lot. In fact, his next book begins with Black Reconstruction, you know? But despite, but what happened was because he was kind of a celebrity figure and because he had a following of sycophants, they began mm. attacking me saying, you know, you are supposed to interview him. You have no right to ask hard questions. You have no, and you, if you wanted to get your, if you wanted MacArthur, you know, you need to get your own. As if that had anything to do anything. So I was, wow. it was really disheartening for, to me. And I realized, like, why am I even doing this? Um, we have to be critical of each other. Otherwise, we don't advance. We don't move forward. I mean, for ourselves, mm-hmm. let alone yes. for a movement. So that's, so I'm not, I'm not trying to be famous, you know, mm-hmm. though I'm on your show now, but I'm not trying to be famous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you've hit on so many of the points which I want to address and ask. So I don't even know which order to go in, but I'm probably going to start with, since you mentioned not trying to be a revolutionary through via Democratic Party, when we see some of our heroes, um, our revolutionary heroes, the likes of Dr. Cornel West and Angela mm-hmm. Davis and, and so on and so forth, and they came out in a coalition which was branded the Coalition Against Fascism. Right. And so that therefore, ergo, let's vote for the Democratic Party en masse. And, you know, we hear 
black people, particularly black women, deliver Joe Biden's presidency. Right. What are we in now? What, five months? Well, November, six, seven months in, we've seen the, the deportation of Haitians. We've yeah. seen the, the stance on Palestine ongoing right now as we talk. Uh, America's not a racist country with his um, with Kamala Harris following suit. And, you know, naturally, there's like a lot of organizing circles. See, we told you, oh, you lot have blood on your hands. And, and then all, all the other campers, no, they're our elders. They're not, they've been in the struggle longer than us. They know better than us. If you're talking to, again, to young people, what would you say to kind of quell or kind of marry these two positions? Right. That's an excellent question. I love how you, you framed it in terms of how to marry these two positions because there's a way that they connect. So, mm-hmm. for example, one of the things I would always tell people, especially when, you, when I'm dealing with like ultra-revolutionaries who don't see <laughs> any space for any kind of reform, yes. they just want to tear it down. Well, you yes. know, there are people who are in prison right now in solitary confinement who need to be out of solitary confinement. If we fight to mm-hmm. end solitary confinement, that might seem like a reform, but damn, it just helps people in solitary confinement. And mm-hmm. so there's ways in which, it, especially in a, a fascist or neo-fascist situation where you have to make strategic decisions that are always short-term, mm-hmm. I wouldn't call them alliances. I would call them holding your nose and supporting a kind of momentary popular front for the sake of being able to have space to fight back. So in the case mm. of the election for Biden, you know, I, I, can, I can't stand Biden. I couldn't stand him for the last four Way years. before. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, um, and I was, uh, it was like a terrible choice. But the issue really was the consensus among those on the left, of, of a particular left, was that we need to basically defeat Trump and we have a better, a better um, uh, foe in Biden-Harris, a better foe. Now, I think that's still a dangerous position for reasons I'm going to say, I'm going to talk about in one second. But, but that's a strategic choice. But it's not the same as saying, OK, now that we have succeeded in campaigning for the Biden-Harris ticket and they're offering us a slot in the party, I'll take it. And because I think that we can actually get more leverage by doing this. See, the issue wasn't leverage. The issue was how to push back a catastrophe in that mm. moment to create the space to make revolutionary change. Now, everyone, everyone, and there's a group called the dissenters, based here in the U.S., but they are, I think they have connections elsewhere, of brilliant, young, anti-war activists, though mostly mm-hmm. you know, people of color, who are organizing. and. They came out very strongly, you know, once Biden Harris, they were elected and they had an inauguration, they came out very strongly against them, as they should. And they were right. And those of us critical were right. One of the first things that that they did was bomb Syria. You know, I mean, to prove his bona fides. And of course, the disastrous policies, the continuation of disastrous policies with respect to Palestine. I mean, you saw that coming. So I think that you could do both. That is, make strategic decisions for the sake of trying to keep a movement going and protect yourself, while at the same time immediately standing up against the continuation, this catastrophic U.S. empire, you know? And I think both those things Mm -hmm. are similar. And I also think that, that we, even though it's true that a lot of Black people mobilizing and organizing did, I mean, for me, it's not about Biden-Harris, but they did, they were able to get rel- rarely, sort of relatively progressive 
senators from Georgia elected. That was historic. Yes. And it wasn't Stacey Abrams, by the way. <laughs> no, it was basically- I was just about to mention her. I mean, I think the comparisons of Stacey Abrams to Ida B. Wells were a bit, <laughs> a bit off. Oh, a bit off. <laughs> <laughs> that's being nice. <laughs> yeah, that's being nice. I, I think, I mean, you know, I've met her. She's a perfectly good person, perfectly nice, but that, those are not her politics. Her politics are mainstream Democratic Party. And I do think that there, there are other formations on the ground in Georgia that certainly made a difference. But there's also, and no one ever talks about this, there's a whole bunch, not a, a huge number, but a bunch of anti-racist white folks in surge standing up for racial justice who went down to Georgia. Some of them were already there. And they were knocking on the doors of some of the white Republicans, persuading them to support Democrats. Now, wow. they didn't have to do that. But for them, they, it, it wasn't simply in their racial interest. It was in, in an anti-racist interest. You know? So there's a lot of people who are trying to do this work, but they also recognize that just because you, you have the Senate for Democrats doesn't mean that Democrats are your friends. You know, mm. The Democratic Party is a militarist party. It is the party of empire as well. It's a party of neoliberalism. You know? And one of the things I teach my students in my own courses is that what we've witnessed really since Nixon is consistent policy across these political parties. That's a neoliberal policy about privatization, pushing wealth upwards, expanding the military and police state while eroding the, the social wage or any kind of social provisions. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's what we're, we've been witnessing from every administration, Obama, yes. Clinton, Jimmy Carter, as well as the Republicans. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's interesting is like, so when you were talking about making space, it made me think of another bifurcation I saw in an interview you had with the UE union. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talked about the difference between survival and transformation as goals of working in poor people. And could you talk a little bit more of the kind of political and organizational tools that are relevant today to achieving these different goals of survival and, and change or transformation? I know uh, for example, you know, in Hammer and Ho, you talked about the communists in Alabama creating committees that would negotiate or petition, or not not petition, that would negotiate, make demands, mm -hmm. or even make you know some level of threats to to landlords to make sure that poor and working people were not evicted, you know, for the sake right. of pure survival. Um, so. Could you could you talk a little bit more about like what are you know things have changed you know we're in 2021 now what are kind of these different tools nowadays and what are those different goals of survival as opposed to transformation right no, that's a really good question I forgot that interview by the way so I'm going to go by what I what I know um, which is one before we even talk about tools we have to begin with the orientation like what's our orientation survive to be able to survive. We treat survival often, not us in our conversation, but often is treated as, as individual. Like, how do, you, how do you survive this? When really what we're talking about is collective survival. Not just of a movement, but even the, even the survival of people who are not in our movement. You know, people who, who need us. So when I say we've got to begin with orientation, we need a caring culture. Mm. One that, that actually takes mutual aid really seriously. It says, you know, mutual aid is about, it's not just movement building, but it's, it's about movement caring and people caring. Mm. And, and, and 
the environmental caring. So survival is also about like, how do you as a community help each other, give to each other, make it non-monetary, you know, not exchange mm-hmm. that's monetary, but help each other in ways, but then help the land, help the environment, make sure that the, what we're doing is clean work, mm-hmm. you know, together. And then once you have that orientation, then, then you begin to think about how decisions are made democratically. Like, how do you actually make decisions if you're going to do this collectively? And that's also about an orientation. This is all before we get to the tools. So part of the mm-hmm. tools would be like, you know, what, what do, and this is old fashioned stuff. It's like, what do people's committees look like? What does, mm-hmm. what do mutual aid and, you know, forms of economy that are cooperative, what, how do you actually operationalize those things? You know, mm-hmm. and how do you do it by being aware of everyone's participation and input. And I don't mean just around gender yes. or just around, you know, sexual orientation or identity, also around age. How do we bring our children into decision making, you know, along mm. with their elders without necessarily, you know, undermining traditions of authority that are cultural and where we deeply invest in our elders as a source of wisdom, but also our children as a source of wisdom. Like, how do you do that? Once you start doing that and getting people together, much like, like the village cultures of, of, in Africa and the Caribbean mm-hmm. and the Americas, much like post, just like the Reconstruction South, once you start doing that, then you begin to develop specific tools that could both advance our survival, that's care for each other, but then in trying to develop those tools, this is transformative. It, is, mm-hmm. it means that we start the model to prefigure the kind of society that we actually want to have while also mobilizing enough people so when we need mass support, when we need to show up for something to make demands, when we need to take something, take land or take resources that belong to us, we're not by ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could, you could see like examples, and it's not easy. You can see examples of this emerging in certain places like uh, with Cooperation Jackson, for example, in Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah, I was, was going to ask about that. I was going to ask about exactly. that. I mean, it's, yeah, go it's ahead. a good example. It's a good example. My, my sister lives in Jackson. And it's mm. a good example of, of what's good, but also what's, what's difficult. Because mm. there they've done all these things to try to create self-sufficient economies to help each other mm. through, you know, to provide for, for the local government to provide, you know, land for people, housing, and things like that. That's one thing. But on the other level, it's also fraught. It's fraught with all the sectarianism, all the fights, all the struggles between people, divisions. That comes with the territory because we are human beings, many of, many of whom come out of movements and come out of particular orientations. So trying to create that orientation, especially with elected government, is very, very hard. It's much easier to do it if it's just like my block, right? Well, not my mm. block, but someone else's block. <laughs> um, that's, that's another story. But, you know, so I think this, this doesn't exactly answer the question, but what it does do is it, I'm trying to argue that, you know, survival and transformative practice in politics should be two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. We should be practicing transformation in our efforts to survive as communities. And, and this is the hardest part of all, if that's going to be our orientation, it means that we need to be open to, to everyone, you know, even if they may not share mm-hmm. our political orientation. 
we just simply need to be, you know, aware of cops, agent provocateurs, and spies, you know? Yes. But then that also, you know, but we do have to be open to everyone and to people who may not know as much or may not agree with us. We've got to care for each other and care for the planet. Otherwise, we're going to create the same exclusionary systems if we actually exercise some kind of state power. Yeah, actually, I wanted to kind of ask a follow-up because it's really interesting. And I think it's really great that you kind of posit uh, survival and transformation as two uh, sides of the same coin. However, you know, something interesting you said in that bit was like, sometimes it can be easier to do it amongst your block as opposed to your elected official. And I wonder, is there ever a tension actually between survival and transformation, especially given that we're in an age of neoliberalism, which is one of deep privatization, which is one of a minimized public sphere. And when you seek solutions that are not necessarily ones, ones that are, you know, in, in in antagonizing the state or demanding from the state? Is there ever a fear that your your solutions of survival are then taking or are then, you know, releasing the pressure that you need to apply to, to the state to demand what is owed to you? Absolutely. That's absolutely. In fact, that was part of the premise of, of In Your Mama's Dysfunctional, talking about what it means to abandon the state as terrain of, of contestation. And it's true because you know, imagine, okay, let's take Flint. I'm going to give a concrete example. Flint, Michigan. Now, on the one hand, one could, could say, well, the survival of people in Flint in the midst of the water crisis meant that, you know, we got all these people raising money and sending bottles of water, right? And, you know, providing people what they need and, you know, it's charity and all this stuff. And yet that does not solve the problem, the harm. It uh, doesn't fix the water. Mm-hmm. The rusted, the, the, the sort of lead-laden water pipes, or the polluted Flint River, the state was complicit in the poisoning of people, and it, it, and so what happened? What happened in Flint was you had a combination of people helping each other, while groups like the Michigan Welfare Rights Organization, others pushing back, you know, even going beyond the state to say we're going to go to the United Nations and talk about this mm. a violation of our human rights. So it is true. There's, there's a tension between the two. If we think of survival in terms of withdrawing, as opposed to preparing us, stealing us to fight mm-hmm. the state. But even that, there's another tension, I think, which is also implied in, in, in your question. Like, what do you take? What do you accept as a solution? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and here I'm going to get myself in trouble, but this whole issue around reparations. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, like I have colleagues who wrote a book that sees reparations as a way to equality. Of course, I'm not, I'm not interested in equality. I'm interested in liberation, by the way. So mm. equality, I don't want equality under the system. So, <laughs> of course. But reparations actually also is full of potential landmines because once the state, which is not our state, decides, okay, you know what? You're right. We're going to cover the expenses or the damages of slavery, Jim Crow, state violence, all that stuff, I'm going to pay you. Once you pay mm-hmm. without actually re- restructuring the arrangements, like, for example, if you give people money to buy a home for all the years of discrimination in the housing market, and you don't actually change the housing market, you don't change the racism that produced this yep. inequality in the first place, you don't even, even if you believe in a capitalist system where equity in a home is a way to accumulate wealth, if you don't, if you can't dismantle 
the racial structure that denies black and brown people equity, whereas it enhances equity for white people, then what good is the money? It, it just, exactly. all it does is, in fact, it's worse, than, it's worse than just reinforcing the system because what it does do, it says, you're done. You have no right to ask for anything else. <laughs> we, yep. we fixed it. We're, 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 we're straight now. And so, we, we, so in the end, we have to figure out ways to fight on all these fronts at the same time, but recognize that it's not enough to make a demand for something. We've got to make a demand for transformation. If that means dismantling exactly. the state as we know it, we've got to do that. No, absolutely. And I think it's to paraphrase what Robin L. Allen says in Black Awakening, Capitalist America, he mm. says that it's not revolutionary politics if all you're offering black people is a route to middle class status. Right. And I think it's very important. I keep trying to bang on a lot about, I mean, the UK context as well is, uh, I mean, it's probably, I'm sure it's very similar to the American context, but, you know, people have on the large bought into the ideas that, you know, a way to achieving liberation or a way to achieving success or freedom is via you know capitalist system of just being able to be equal and treat equally under it so i kind of feel like that's what that's what i'm trying to be involved right now trying to get people to that's why i regularly post and people get a bit (laughs) i had vj prashad on uh about a couple weeks ago and he (laughs) we spoke about Mm -hmm. this as well we spoke about tying your ambition to reality i mean if i Mm -hmm. I put up the stats if i put your stats up in the uk for example we find that the average black graduate after 10 years of graduating will be on thirty thousand pounds a year and people feel, when I, people feel like what people can't believe that if I if I, if I youth unemployment amongst black and Pakistanis and Bengalis is nine percent right now in the UK forty eight forty eight percent of black people do not get a pay rise I mean the stats are all there so I keep telling people yeah okay I know you brought into you might become a footballer or a rapper or you might make it or you might you know your crypto your Dodge coin might go off one day <laughs> but you know those are the absolute minority and the stats don't add up so right. I just yeah right they sure don't add up that's and that's just on a basic material level, they don't add up at all. And then people believe it. Right. And what's worse, you know, is that there is a, a culture in which the neoliberal thinking has, I wouldn't say infected, but it is it's so much a part of our common sense. So yep. I get, you know, you think about all the folks who, who celebrate Black wealth, like they mm-hmm. celebrate wealthy Black people, like, yeah, you know, like as if somehow... <laughs> It's gonna rub off on them. I mean, exactly. And I, I, it's so disappointing when I, you know, I was, I, I used to make this joke in class about, you know, like I would, I would always give people like free PDFs of my, of my books. Yes. Like I would never, or, or any PDF of any book. You know, I would try to okay. make sure people. Now, I don't feel bad downloading your books for free now. Oh no, not at all. In fact, I'm, <laughs> I'm very happy of the fact that I've, I've not gotten a dime for Freedom Dreams in ten years. Oh wow. Because it's a free PDF, you know, it's like you can find it anywhere, which is okay. Yeah. See, I'm not, so I would joke to my students and say, you know, I don't have to worry about it, you know, because um, I'm getting paid. And instead of sort of thinking about what it means to share, their first reaction is, yeah, Professor Kelly's getting paid. Like, no, that's not the point. <laughs> that's, no, I'm not, I'm not, that's not the point. So I stopped doing that. I stopped saying that because it's like, there is a fascination with the celebrity culture and the celebrity culture is associated yep. with wealth. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know what to say sometimes when having grown up in a, in a hip hop world, for example, as a, as a young person, where you had all these alternative rappers who were talking about not wealth, but liberation. And then, yep. you know, it, 
that's not, that's not to say there wasn't a parallel to that, but now it's really like everything's about getting paid. And I just wish yep. it was about getting free. Mm. Could, could you, yeah, could you talk about uh, culture a little bit more? Because that's, a, uh, it seems like throughout your work, you know, you always make an effort to, you know, tie in the importance of culture and music. I mean, you have a whole book on like the only, the alone, uh, yeah, Thelonious uh, Monk, right. Thelonious Monk, my bad. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even Race Rebels, you know, talks a lot about uh, culture as well. So, yeah, could you talk a little bit more of culture and the role of that it plays in, in um, resistance for poor and working people, poor and working black yeah. people? Well, see, I was afraid you'd ask that question. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 um, I, I will try to answer the question. I will try to talk about it. Let me, let me say why I'm always hesitant, because... I used to write a lot about culture. I still do. Mm -hmm. There was a time when I had a lot of optimism about mm -hmm. the role culture plays in transformative politics. And I think that's still true. I think it's still mm -hmm. true. But one of the things about the domain of culture is how easily it can be co-opted, mm -hmm. commoditized, mm -hmm. and yep. then sold back to us. And so let me yep. talk about culture in a way that's not so celebratory. I think about uh, the celebrity culture that we're facing in the kind of the, the new black movement and how so many really, I think, for the most part, principled activists have mm -hmm. bought into the celebrity culture. And I keep yep. seeing people doing commercials. Like, mm -hmm. why would you even do a commercial? Mm -hmm. So Black Lives Matter, which is not a movement. Let alone the Grammys. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and I have to say... Some of the people I do, I mean, in the case of the Grammys, my, 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 the one person I would defend to the, to the end uh, is Rosa Clemente, only because, you know, she, she was actually one of the writers, one of the people who helped write or do research for mm. the film on Fred Hampton. Oh, okay. And she, so she was there. She was there. Now, I can't speak to all the other people. <laughs> no. and, Please and do comment on the film as well, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. I could, we could talk about the film. I mean, so in terms of the celebrity culture, yes, there's a way in which I think it's easy to get to, to be slipped into it. And again, you know, part of the problem, and again, this is, this is not something I think that's deliberate. It's about orientation. Sometimes mm -hmm. we believe that the best way to build a counterculture, counterhegemonic politics is by reaching the masses. So there's a way that we talk about, okay, how can we kind of level up? You know, how can we mm. take this idea and make it accessible? Accessible is like the cold word. Like, how do you make it accessible? Yes. Well, let's make a film. No, let's, you know, music. Let's do something. As if somehow, once it becomes, once it's in circulation as a commodity, that people are going to listen and say, oh, yeah. Freedom, yes. Liberation, yes. I, I, I dig that. And I remember I was having a conversation with Kamasi Washington, who is a great mm -hmm. artist. And I was trying to convince Kamasi not to play in Israel, mm. you know, as part of the boycott. Like, don't go to Tel Aviv. Just don't go. And he, yeah. he was kind of him and hawing about it. He was kind of hesitant, but he said, I just have to go. And his, his manager who happened to be of Ethiopian descent, which I thought was ironic, was actually saying, no, he has to go. He has to go. <clears throat> like, really? Like, well, you're Ethiopian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but still, mm -hmm. the point is, is that he, like so many others, like Alicia Keys, she said the same thing. They believe that their music is powerful, that their music changes mm. it. 
changes people, that it could, you know, so he and Alicia Keys had a kind of narrative like, you know, I'm going there to spread love, you know, and then when we spread love, you know, mm-hmm. it opens up the doors for a real conversation between Palestinians and, and Israelis, blah, 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 blah. And I said, do you know how many IDF members, Israeli soldiers, shooting Palestinians in during you know, land day, during the Great March return, shooting them in the knee, shooting them in the head, mm-hmm. listening to your music as they do so. <laughs> right? Yeah, they- listening to your music. So I don't believe that it's simply a matter of like finding the revolutionary culture because it, it's not the thing that transforms. What it does do is it, it's more of a, a diagnostic for where we are. If more and more, if you have more and more sort of revolutionary culture emerging, then you have more and more people at least thinking about these things. But it requires organizing work. It requires pedagogy. It requires agitation propaganda. It requires getting people in a room and actually talking to them and talking to each other mm-hmm. and listening and doing the work of organizing. That's the only way you make change. So, I, I, so I'm always a little bit skeptical about it. Nevertheless, you know, thanks to the tragic murder of George Floyd, the, the culture machine has been bending over backwards to kind of produce everything they can about Black life and Black people, you know? Yeah. And some of it's been great. I have to say, you know, before we talk about, you know, Judas and the Messiah, which is about yeah. uh, Fred Hampton, the, the series of films, Small Acts, you know, about mm. Black Britain, I think, I think some of them are extraordinary, you know, yes. and it reminds us of the struggles of Black people in England in the moment of yep. Thatcherism, you know, liberal transformation and how fundamental they were. I think like those, some of those films are some of the best films uh, I've seen. I agree. And it really kind of shifts the discourse and gets people to get out of the United States. So, on yes. the, so, and that's, what's that? That's Amazon, right? You know? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? so, I mean, here we got the contradiction. Amazon, the same company that won't pay its workers. Amazon, the same mm-hmm. company that paid, that gave $10 million to various black organizations, including Black Lives Matter. They took the money and then it made them shut up about, for the most part, about the treatment of workers in Amazon. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It's, it's just chock full of contradictions. And the same thing with, Judas and the Black Messiah, which I know some people have mixed feelings about, I think it was an extremely important film for different reasons. One, it depicted what a radical Black-led multiracial movement actually looks like, multiracial class movement looked like, mm-hmm. which we can which is inconceivable. We, we think yes. that we're supposed to be in our affinity groups, you know, to, to use exactly. neoliberal language, you know, and instead... Although it used to be anarchist language, but that's another story. But instead, what the film shows is what it means to lead a movement, what it means to build a movement from the grass up, grass from the grassroots, and more importantly, that we act that our movements have the capacity to draw people in, including poor white people, if you do the work, mm-hmm. and to draw people into a movement that's not simply race neutral, class first economic justice, but one that's deeply anti-racist, you know, mm. that that's possible. We can do that. We, we don't have to give up one for the other. Fred Hampton and, and the, the, uh, the Black Panther Party in Chicago, the Illinois chapter, never once said, you know what? Okay, we'll make a deal. You join us and we'll just play down the racism issue. 
No, it said, you join us under our terms. Right. And, they, yes. and they did it. So, and then the second part, the second reason why it's so important is because the film deals with the state mm. and the power of the state to, to move us to do the work of the state. Yes. And, and that's where, you know, I know a lot of people are like, you know, why, why, why the, the Judas part? Like, we, we just want the Messiah. But, the, <laughs> but what you learn from the film is that it's not just Lakeith Stanfield's role as the Judas. There's all kinds of Judases everywhere. All these Negroes yes. who are willing to take a buck to sell out a movement. And that's why even in the history of slave revolts in North America, almost every single one was betrayed by some enslaved person, you know, who mm-hmm. was either afraid or easily distracted or easily bought and sold, you know? And mm-hmm. that's, so when we build movements, we have to be really careful. We have to learn from, we have to sort of take these lessons very seriously. It's very interesting. That's a, a beautiful segue into my next kind of point, which of point of discussion. You know, we always, we often say that when America sneezes, Britain catches the cold. Mm-hmm. And in considering what you said about Judas and the Black Messiah and building multi-race solidarities against the state. My question then is, um, tying that into, I find a lot of the time through, by way of Clubhouse, I've been, uh, it's been open doors for me to see what's happening on the ground in America in real time. And, you know, we saw a rise, or I don't know if it's a rise now, or it's just become more to the forefront of Afro-pessimism. And I saw it being so codified as a whole grammar, there's a whole language, you know, the social death and libidinal economy and, and, and junior partners. And, and, you know, and I found that when I looked, when I looked into the British context, we have almost exactly the same sentiment amongst black people, but we just don't have the language for it yet. So my question then is, is multiracial solidarities, you know, is it still admirable, still possible? (laughs) <laughs> I hope that's not a curveball <laughs> no 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 that's actually that's a really that's this is the fun the fundamental question i think okay let me let me answer the question and then try to explain why i think i i think it's it's definitely possible mm-hmm. um and not only possible but necessary mm-hmm. um it's hard yeah. it's always been hard but it's necessary not simply because of we need more bodies but because mm-hmm. you know it's not as if Black people, although we suffer a lot, it's not like we're the only ones suffering under the system of, of racial capitalism and neoliberal uh, oppression, settler colonialism. We're, there's many of us. Yes. We got, you know, just talking about Indigenous people and how yep. Indigenous peoples in North America and throughout, you know, who have been waging the most, the sharpest, most, most trenchant anti-colonial war in America forever end up being marginalized around mm. this, I mean, Afro-pessimists do this, you know, and not just Afro-pessimists. I mean, a lot of us do it. And so there's a yeah. lot to learn from indigenous struggles for sovereignty saying, look, give the land back, which may seem like ridiculous, especially when we talk about our land loss as Black people who were victims of settler colonialism, taken as, as captives, as prisoners, and forced to work. And then we become part of the settler regime. You know, mm-hmm. and so when we talk about our land loss, we ignore indigenous land loss. So I just don't think we, we can afford not to build robust multiracial organizations as long as it goes back to what we talked about earlier, as long as we're not compromising on principles. And what that mm-hmm. means, and this is the hardest part, is that we can't build a radical black movement with the majority. Yeah. Never. Yeah. <laughs> we just can't. 
even yeah. even the even the most liberal, the more liberal, the at least the more progressive elements of the civil rights movement, for example, in North America, uh, and one could say the same thing about the struggles in in Brixton in the eighties, yeah. or the struggles, you know, the rebellion that took place. Was, I think it was two thousand ten. Like it's never the majority. Yeah, it's never the yeah. majority, and, and we should expect that because we're all shaped the ideological imperatives of the system. And so the idea that somehow we're going to go it alone and we can't even get our people. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm ready to go, go it with people who will, you know, share a set of principles and really believe in revolution and willing to, to fight. And a lot of people who are willing to do that mm. don't look like us. Some people do look like us. Facts. You know, now, does Facts. that mean that, that there's not anti-blackness among some of the people who are comrades. Of course there is. But even that, to me, is not a, a permanent situation. Anti-blackness mm. is not the structure of, of modern civilization, not the thing that structures everything. It's not a permanent structure. It is a product of history and can be undone. And there are people who are allies and comrades who are fighting to undo it. And it's up to us to fight, too, to help us even undo our own anti-blackness. You know, I know more anti- I know more black anti-black people than, <laughs> than I know indigenous anti-black people. Right? You know, so we, we've got a lot of work to do. And I understand, like I'm sympathetic to the to the move toward the attraction toward Afro-pessimism. I understand it. But I actually I've been trying to put forward an alternative kind of pessimism. Mm. And that mm. is building on the ideas of the surrealist Pierre Naville, who talks about revolutionary pessimism. By revolutionary pessimism, if, if, in fact, it's much closer to like Toni Morrison or Miri Baraka's uh, kind of pessimism. Mm. Pessimism is not the belief that you're going to fail or there's nothing you could do. In fact, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not even Gramsci's pessimism. But revolutionary mm-hmm. pessimism basically says we recognize the catastrophe in front of us and we can't pretend it's not there. And so we need to prepare to fight it at all costs. In other words, we can't be optimistic in the way that we believe that, you know, we're going to win just because the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. Mm-hmm. Like we can't mm-hmm. believe that. We can't believe that, you know, spontaneous workers' rebellions or whatever will inevitably usher in a new society because what we see is the power of the state, the power of capital to push back, to buy off certain people. So it means that we can't stop fighting, that we can't stop fighting, that we need to to prefigure a different future while fighting against the catastrophes of the present. And that's what Mm. Pierre Naville said that. You know, he, he made that point in 1925. And so I think... And Walter Benjamin also, you know, said much the same thing. And Michael Lowe, talked about militant pessimism, you know, aimed at, you know, preventing the onset of disaster by all possible means, you know. And when Benjamin talks about it, he's, he doesn't conceive of revolution as like some kind of natural or inevitable outcome, economic and technological progress, which is a kind of historical materialist idea that there's stages in that we're going to, you know, we're in a particular stage of development and eventually as bad as capitalism is, it's going to usher in the productive forces so that we can inherit them through class struggle, wither away the state, and the end of history. Like, you know, 
But <laughs> what, what he's saying, what I believe, and I think what our movements even knew before there was any Pierre Naville or Ben Amin or Toni Morrison, our movements knew that our presence, our resistance is an interruption in the process of this kind of historical evolution, this catastrophe, that we interrupt it. We don't go with the flow and wait for the time that's ripe. We don't wait for the time that's ripe. We interrupt it. We interrupt its operations. Mm. And every time we do that, we create chaos, which then forces the state and capital to kind of regroup and get bigger weapons, you know? Yes. And then we interrupt again. That's, that's our history, you know? Yes. And that leads to what, what we can think of as a kind of anticipatory optimism. You know, this, I mean, mm. this, you know, who, who knows this better than, mm. than Amakar Cabral, you know? Exactly. I mean, he, he was like, you know, that colonialism has to be interrupted in order for, our, for us to return back to history. And that, to me, is the best way to understand that. And that's what indigenous people are saying. They're saying, we're going to interrupt this catastrophe in order for us to return to the future. And the future mm. is the, the, the people, the, 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 all life will be part of us again. We're, you know, we're going to create treaties with the land and create treaties with animals and create treaties with all the people who we don't know. And those treaties are about maintaining a peace with one another and building a kind of sovereignty that's based on restorative justice, that's based on transformative justice, that's based on uh, no, you know, no war state, no capitalist state, but it's a state of being that's natural and connects us all in a way. That's not the end of history. That in some ways is the beginning mm-hmm. of a new uh, stage of interruption. That was beautiful. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Christian, do you want to go ahead? Yeah. So this question has been burning in my head since I heard <laughs> you say this. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to get it out. All right. So I watched this uh, panel you gave. Uh, it was along with Vijay Prashad. It was on mm-hmm. Walter Rodney's book about the Reven- Russian Revolution. And somewhere near the end of this uh, panel, you made a comment saying something along the lines, and correct me if I'm wrong, Historical materialism has outlived its use, but dialectical materialism uh, has not. Could you define these terms for us and why one may, may be more useful than the other? Yeah, you know, um, after I said that, I was on a train on the subway with my friends Christina Heatherton and Jordan Camp arguing because hmm. they just couldn't believe. <laughs> it was, like, we were arguing for like an hour. And I said, look, I got to go home. Um, <laughs> you do not go into a room, especially you no know, verso books, of course, as the left, the yeah. left publisher, and say, you know, historical materialism has outlived its usefulness. Well, you know, and, I, and what we argued about, and this is and this is the best way to answer the question, is, and I told him, I said, no, I learned this from Cedric Robinson. Cedric has been saying mm-hmm. this from the gate. He's he's been saying this since the 1960s. You know, when he was in grad school, and they said, no, he doesn't. I said, yes, he does. I said, you look at the 2000, uh, did the preface to the 2000 edition of Black Marxism, which I wrote the first introduction for and got it reprinted. And Cedric writes, he says, now quote, actually, he says, Marxism's internationalism was not global. Its materialism was exposed as an insufficient explanator of cultural and social forces. And its economic determinism too often politically compromised freedom struggles beyond or outside of the metropole. So what he's saying is that, you know, 
the theory of historical materialism doesn't really explain our history because our sources are not always within the framework, the kind of Western framework of social and economic processes. Sometimes they are spiritual. Sometimes Mm. they come out of a culture which is not shaped or framed by a a bourgeois bourgeois society, Mm. you know? And that's why when he talks about like marronage or, you know, maroon societies or the struggles on the part of the modern, the real modern proletariat of, of North America and the Caribbean and the Americas, which is the enslaved, working on these industrial plantations, making, you know, growing sugar. But that's the modern proletariat, as C.L.R. James says, that they weren't necessarily fighting to control the means of production. <laughs> like, forget mm-hmm. sugar. We actually want to leave this plantation and go back to village life and think about mm. how we live together differently, you know? And that doesn't come, it's not structured under the kind of stadial view of history that historical materialism kind of imposes. Now, when I talk about dialectical, I mean, it so happens that Cedric also takes a dialectical approach to understanding history, which is to say that there are contradictions that emerge, antagonisms that produce these contradictions, these contradictions of one position versus another. And out of that, out of those contradictions, things change. Something has to give. And whatever Mm. gives is is a new set of relationships which produce a new set of contradictions. But he's simply saying that those relationships and where people come to them cannot be understood always through the logic of production or distribution Mm. or surplus. Mm. And so this is where, and I know that we haven't talked about religion or spirituality or any of this stuff, but one of the things that Cedric, one of the books he wrote, which no one ever reads, but I think is one of the most important books, is called An Anthropology of Marxism. Mm. And in it, one of the things he, he argues is that he doesn't simply argue that socialist thought begins way before there was a Marx and Engels. He says, you know, you got to go to medieval, and he's talking about what's in Europe, medieval times and even ancient times. But his main point is that socialist thought wasn't necessarily a response to capitalism because capitalism didn't exist at the time. Mm-hmm. Instead, socialist thought comes out of the utopian and the religious wow. ideas that these, these medieval clerics, for example, some of them were quite radical, who actually were anti-racist, who were, you know, saw this, the feudal order as stagnant and wanted revolutionary change, who actually saw the liberation of women, the emancipation of women as part of what they need to do. And so their socialism came from their reading of the Bible, you know, mm-hmm. much like their socialism is coming out of the reading of the Quran. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily the contradictions of production that produces a vision of socialism, but what happens is that the Marx and Engels especially, but the Marxists make a distinction between utopian and scientific socialism. Scientific yes. is the one that's locked into historical materialism. The utopian, which they reject, is the one that's like the vision of, of a new society, whether it's Exodus in the Bible and you know what that could produce for a new world. And, and that's what Cedric was trying to attend to. Like Once you eliminate that whole tradition of socialism, you have nothing left. You have just like a very narrow understanding of what socialism can be. And once we recognize that, it then and we get past this idea of that utopian versus scientific, then we can move 
toward a much more radical sort of critique of the system and a vision of a future that doesn't rely taking the productive forces and, and, and anointing them as like the way forward. So compare, for example, an indigenous vision of returning to the land and returning the land to the animals and returning to people to each other versus, oh, well, now we got computers and we got the internet and we've got, like, we can go to Mars and, mm-hmm. and social society based on production is going to be the greatest thing. Well, the Soviets tried that. Their whole thing was like, you know, we, we like production. We, we, so they built a capitalist version of socialism, you know, state <laughs> socialism, but based on production. And what did it lead to? The same alienation of workers, the same, you know, doldrums of, of repetitive work, the same kind of apartment living, the same, the same things that people think are so great that capitalism gave us. That doesn't allow for a vision that might return back in time to uh, one that's actually spiritually grounded as opposed to materially grounded. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you, yeah, as yeah. you're talking, you're literally trying, touching on so many other points of the subsequent questions I have. I have just a few more. I mean, what okay. I'm hearing a lot of is what you're saying is, I read recently when Sylvia Winter speaking about these kind of liminal categories coming together. Mm-hmm. Coming together to kind of form what it means, you know, to be a human again. And I'm, that's what I'm hearing a little bit about. Just, okay, so just a couple more. I know it has been quite a long conversation. Sorry for taking so much of your time. No, I'm, I'm, um, my answers are long, so. No, 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 this is extremely generative. It's a very broad question, and I think you kind of touched on it a little bit anyway, but it's what role do dreams have in our activism today? I think dreams are very, very important. And by dreams, I don't mean individual dreams you have when you sleep, but mm-hmm. the collective dreams that we create in discourse, in conversation, in struggle. And so one of the things that, one of the misreadings of, of freedom dreams oftentimes is that some people literally meant, read it to be like like dream. Like you go to bed at night and yeah. you, up, you have like all the answers. But, you know, when I wrote that book, I was actually dealing with, I wrote it for young people, literally, mm-hmm. who I saw were really pessimistic and, and they just had all this despair. Uh, yes. And they just felt rudderless. And, and so what I wanted to do was is go back and look at the quote-unquote freedom dreams of different movements. That is, the movements creating these collective visions of what the future could look like, whether it's a movement that's demanding reparations, a movement that's about leaving uh, North America for some kind of free space, some kind of, you know, whether it's, you know, liberated zone or a different country, the, the dreams of, of Black feminists who can imagine as the Kobahi River Collective did, what does it mean to like have real freedom, real liberation for women, which requires a dismantling of capitalism and the reordering of whole society, patriarchy and all that stuff. Mm. What does that mean? And so one of the, the key things I, I argue is that the radical imagination isn't a dream state as much as it is a product of social movements themselves that you can't divorce critical analysis from social movements and that participation in those social movements allow us to see things that we couldn't see before. It allows us to have a deeper understanding of the mechanisms of oppression, a deeper understanding of how systems work so we can have a deeper, more robust mode of analysis. And out of that analysis, better understanding of 
structural inequality, what reproduces it, what, what we can't see, you know, and render those visible. And once we do that, we can begin to navigate a world where those things that we take for granted as being neutral, we want to eliminate those things. We, we, we begin mm-hmm. to see a, a much more robust understanding of freedom. Uh, and you can't do it outside of social movements because that's, that's the historical lesson. You know, the Kumbahi River yes. Collective statement was a product of their struggles in the streets against, you know, violence against women, but also against the patriarchy of, of uh, male-led movements that also said we want freedom too, you know? <laughs> and and they, they compelled those activists to see differently. Thank you so much. I mean, I have so much more to talk about. I know it can be... I know we can go on for hours, but I won't. But what I will do, so I have it in in on audio. Can I? Can we get a commitment to a future episode? <laughs> <laughs> if, if you th- if you think it's it's worthwhile, but you know, like once once people hear this, I'm gonna blow up. You know, <laughs> like my, my my social media profile just blow up, and it's like, like, will you be able to find time to get me in? <laughs> will I will I be able to get a reply back? I'll get your secretary right. next time. <laughs> yes, right. Oh boy, I wish I had, this, I had someone to help me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I would, I would love to. It was really great talking to you, and, and hopefully one of these days in person. You know, next time, I hopefully, that'll be. Yeah, hopefully, this has been a generative conversation. You're listening to the Malcolm Effect with Mama. Do please like, comment, subscribe. Be that on Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Podcasts. Until next time, people.